a summer day in western North Carolina. My older brother Don and I had decided to tag along with our dad to work because he was installing a railing at a house built right on the shoreline of Lake Toxaway. Dad had told us that if we went with him, we'd be able to spend the day swimming in this beautiful lake while he worked. I was close to turning eight years old, and Don was eleven and a half. For boys our age, you couldn't ask for a better way to spend a summer day. So we eagerly accepted that offer. When we arrived at the house that morning, we saw that we had made a wise decision. There was one big dock just off the shoreline. That became our main base of operations for the day. And then there was a second smaller floating dock about a hundred feet out into the lake, just kind of oddly removed from the land, like a little rectangular island. Well, for the first few hours, we stuck close to that main dock and the shore, but that curious little floating dock kept on beckoning to us. And finally, we decided we would swim out to it. I was a little nervous because I wasn't the strongest swimmer, but 100 feet out and another 100 feet back wasn't that far. So we jumped in and started swimming. We made it to the little dock, no problem. We hung out there for a few minutes, catching our breath and splashing around. And then we started back. For the first half of the trip back, I did fine. But then, pretty suddenly, I started to tire out. And it was serious. I couldn't keep my head above water anymore. I was going under. Don was close by, and he saw that I was in serious trouble, gurgling, spitting, thrashing around. But he'd also heard about how dangerous it is to try to save a drowning person. Drowning people are usually in full panic mode and often end up pushing their would-be rescuer down under just so they can get one more breath. So Don had to think fast. He took a big breath, and he swam under to see how deep it was. We weren't too far out, so it was only about 10 feet deep. So he swam directly beneath me, and he put his feet on the muddy bottom of the lake. He stood up straight and reached his arms up until he had one of my feet in each of his hands. I straightened my legs, and at last, my head was far out of the water. I took several deep breaths. While holding me up, he walked forward a few steps toward the shoreline, but then he needed to do some breathing himself, so he had to let me go. He swam up and breathed deeply for a few seconds. I kept trying to swim to the shore, but it didn't take me long to start sinking right back into the abyss and losing the battle to keep my head up. So Don took another deep breath, and he went down again, holding my feet up and walking toward the shore. We repeated the cycle a few more times, and at last, it was shallow enough so that I could touch the bottom with my own feet. I walked the rest of the way in, and rested and coughed for a little while, and then we started swimming again. This is The Sun Also Rises, here on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and today's episode is about people and organizations that help people in need. 
They see individuals who are not doing well, who are in over their heads, struggling, sinking deeper and deeper, and they reach out and give them a hand. We're calling this episode, Look for the Helpers. The next segment begins back in 2006, when a man named Fabio Chavez was studying a small poor town in Paraguay called Cateyura. Cateyura is just outside Paraguay's capital city, Asuncion, and almost all of the trash from Asuncion's half a million people ends up there. Cateyura is literally built on a landfill. Most of the 40,000 people in Cateyura make their living scavenging through all of that trash, searching for parts and for anything they can repair or sell. Life for these people is difficult and bleak. It's not hygienic. It's often unsafe. And there are very few opportunities for the children. Mr. Fabio Chavez is an environmental consultant. And he was studying Cateyuda in hopes of developing a recycling program there. And while conducting this work, he began to really pity the children of this town. Illiteracy was rampant. Many of them were in extreme poverty. Pollution saturated their lives. And many of them were sinking into a culture of drugs and gangs. Fabio saw that these kids desperately needed something positive in their lives, something enriching, something that could lift them out of all of that squalor. And Fabio is also a guitarist. He learned to play guitar when he was a child, and before he became an environmental consultant, he had worked as a music teacher at a school. Fabio really valued the music that was in his life. He cherished it as a source of positivity. So he began to wonder if there would be a way to give the gift of music, the gift of musicianship, to the poor children living in Cateyura. There were no funds available to give the children instruments, and in this impoverished slum, a violin would have been worth more than a house anyway. So it would be unwise to make the children targets for crime and theft by giving them expensive instruments. So Fabio looked at what they did have in Cateyura, and he saw that they had lots and lots of trash. He was in the business of recycling, so he wondered if some of that trash could be recycled into makeshift instruments. Fabio wasn't much of a craftsman himself, but among the mountains of garbage in Cateyura, he met a trash collector named Nicholas Gomez. And Gomez is a remarkable craftsman. For years and years, he's worked scavenging for parts and repairing and selling them. And all of that work has given him a very impressive skill set. So with Fabio's vision and Gomez's craftsmanship, they set out to build instruments for the poor children of Cateyura. Their workshop became a location of refinement and experimentation. An old water pipe was a good body for a flute. A wooden pallet could be lathed and carved into a neck for a double bass. 
a bent salad fork became a tailpiece for a violin, and an oil drum was a good body for a cello. Once they'd made a handful of instruments, Fabio began to teach the children how to play them. Here's a clip of Juan Ayala. He's 18 years old, and he plays a flute made from a discarded water pipe, some Peruvian coins, some parts of locks, and some pieces of cutlery. Here's a clip of Mauricio, who plays double bass. The body of his bass was once a can used to store chemical products, and the neck is made from wood from a shipping pallet. The next clip is a boy named Andres Riveros, playing a saxophone made out of galvanized pipe that was originally used as a gutter on a house. The keys are made from spoons, bottle caps, and old buttons that were originally on clothing. And here is 15-year-old Maria Pineo. She's playing a violin made from an old paint can, a wood pallet, and also a fork that functions as the tailpiece. Here's what Maria said about the value of the program. A lot of the kids in my country get into drugs and alcohol because they don't know what to do with their lives. Music is something that helps avoid all these things. When I play my violin, I feel great satisfaction. I love it because you can convey everything with it. You can tell if you're angry, if you're happy, if you're sad, if you're in love. You can convey everything. My violin is part of me. I take it almost everywhere I go. Since this project began back in 2006, Fabio and Nicholas have volunteered thousands of hours working on it. Nicholas has built more than 120 instruments, and Fabio has taught the kids how to make those instruments sing. And they formed an orchestra. It's called Los Reciclados, or the Recycled Orchestra. And at present, they have 30 members. The first few practices were pretty cacophonous, but they stuck to it, and the members gradually got the hang of their makeshift instruments. And the project has become a big success. The Recycled Orchestra has toured through Paraguay and Brazil and Argentina, and then they embarked upon an overseas tour playing in many of the great music halls of Europe. And besides the 30 members of the orchestra, there are currently another 50 children and teenagers participating in the music program in Cateura, who hope to one day become members of that orchestra. A full-length documentary was recently released about the orchestra. It's called Landfill Harmonic. This is a clip of the Landfill Harmonic or the recycled orchestra playing together. I think if you consider where these kids came from, the bleak Paraguayan landfill that they were born into, and the squalor that this project and this music has lifted them out of, then it is inspiring and moving, I think, to, to hear this performance. 
Fabio says that one of the most uplifting results of the project has been that the Recycled Orchestra has inspired other similar projects in impoverished communities in Mexico, Ecuador, Panama, Brazil, and Burundi. The joy and hope that Fabio Chavez's project gives to the young musicians prove that it is true that one man's trash is another man's treasure. The next segment of this episode is about another individual who's helping people in need in a meaningful way. For this, we'll turn it over to Kayla Taylor, a junior at Herbert W. Armstrong College. After a hard day of work, it's nice to get home and take a nice, long, relaxing shower. A shower is something that most of us have access to, and it's easy to take for granted. But imagine what it would be like if you didn't have access to a shower for months or more. This is the reality that Jake Austin, a 31-year-old from St. Louis, Missouri, began pondering after volunteering to help the homeless. He joined an organization with a food truck that fed the homeless and handed out clothing and hygienic supplies. While volunteering one day, he was very disgusted to discover that most of the contents on top of the hygienic table were things like used deodorant, used toothbrushes, and used toothpaste. Wanting to improve the station, he was granted permission to take over the table and raise donations. After a month, Jake received a donation of some really nice shampoo and was really looking forward to handing it out. When he offered it to a man who visited his table, the man replied, you know, thank you, but I've got nowhere to use it, so what's the point? This is when it dawned on Jake. The homeless people didn't have access to the facilities that we have access to every day, and they couldn't use the products that they were handing out. He then thought, if we can make kitchens mobile, then why can't we make showers mobile? That was the beginning of his group, Shower to the People. And by January 2015, Jake had purchased a used truck from Craigslist for $5,000 and set about transforming it into a mobile showering unit. And that was with help from many generous people. Apache Village RV offered to work on the shower truck for free, installing two showers, two sinks, flooring, heating, air conditioning, and plumbing. Other people even pitched in to buy a generator and water heater so people could take hot showers. Currently, the truck travels around the greater St. Louis area where those experiencing homelessness are gathered, places such as food banks and clothing distribution centers. The group provides clean towels and soap and sets up a table outside that provides brand new handouts, things such as new toothbrushes, deodorant, soap, razors, and all kinds of things. On an average workday, they can provide up to 50 showers at around eight minutes each. That is a lot of showers, which begs the question, where does all the water come from and what do they do with the used water? The city itself is what has made a mobile showering unit feasible. By obtaining a license from St. Louis, Jake has been able to hook up his truck to the city's fire hydrants and use as a meter to pay for water usage. In addition, the city's combined sewer system allows them to dispose of the gray water through the storm drains. Currently, Shower to the People is hoping to raise funds for a second truck that would provide both showers and laundry service. But the program is a lot more than just helping the homeless stay clean. 
People can be given food to fill their bellies and clothes to wear, but if they're not clean, Jake realized there was no way they were going to land a job. He hopes this project will restore dignity to those who may have lost it, pushing them a step further to his ultimate goal of getting people off the streets. Get some hope in their bones, he said, and they can take the next steps. They can keep climbing. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. Today we're looking at individuals and organizations who help people in need. Don't forget you can contact the show by sending an email to tsar at kpcg.fm. Well, St. Louis is, of course, not the only place where homelessness is a problem. It's something that you find to varying degrees just about everywhere on the planet. And it's a really complex and multifaceted problem. But this next story shows that an incredibly simple solution can go a long way toward helping. This story begins last year when the mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico, was driving around the city and he spotted a man standing on the street holding up a sign that said, I want a job, anything helps. Throughout his career, this mayor, whose name is Richard Berry, had talked to many homeless people and other panhandlers around Albuquerque. And many of them told him that they didn't want to beg for money, but they were not able to find work. So they felt that it was their only option. Well, when Barry saw that sign, it gave him an idea. Instead of asking these people, who are often demoralized and discouraged, to go out and look for work, Barry thought the city could bring work to them. So he and his team launched a program called There's a Better Way. This month is the one-year anniversary of the program. And what they do is send a van around the city to pick up any panhandlers who want to work. And they pay each worker $9 per hour, which is more than the minimum wage. And they also give them a free lunch. And at the end of the day, the workers are offered to stay in one of the city's overnight shelters. Since the program started, it has cleaned litter from 196 city blocks. They've moved about 70,000 pounds of litter so far. And the program has resulted in more than 930 jobs so far. And it has connected over 100 people to permanent employment. And just in the last couple of months, Barry's team has expanded the program from operating two days per week to four. Here's a statement Barry made about the program in an interview with the Washington Post on August 11th. He said, You can just see the spiral some of these people have been on to end up on the corner. Sometimes it takes a little catalyst in their lives to stop the downward spiral, to let them catch their breath, and the result can be remarkable. They've had the dignity of work for a day. Someone believed in them today. It's helping hundreds of people, and our city is more beautiful than ever. The program has not stamped out homelessness and panhandling in Albuquerque, but it is making a momentous difference in the lives of hundreds of people who need help. It's showing these people that they have value, and that with work, 
they can improve their situation and the quality of their lives. As we heard with the Recycled Orchestra there in Paraguay, other communities are reaching out to Mayor Barry in Albuquerque. They see the success of his outreach program, and they want to bring that same model to their own cities. Dozens of cities across America and even one in South Korea have contacted Mayor Barry for advice about how they can replicate his program. So this simple but effective idea could end up helping thousands of people across the globe. The last segment of today's show begins just outside of Sydney, Australia, on an evening in 1964. Don Ritchie had just bought a home at the southern end of the Gap Park in Watson's Bay. This house was strategically located just on top of the massive sandstone cliffs that guard the mouth of Sydney Harbor. Mr. Ritchie was 40 years old, and he had moved there because of the beautiful views the house affords of the harbor and of the surrounding cliffs. Before he bought the house, he had heard a little about the suicides that sometimes happened there, when people would jump off the cliffs, but he didn't think too much about it. But on the night in question, just a few weeks after he moved into the house, Mr. Ritchie was looking out of his window, and he saw a figure outside. It was a man walking toward the edge of the cliff that was just about 100 feet from Mr. Ritchie's front door. Mr. Ritchie could tell from the man's walk that he was upset, anxious, agitated. And then he saw this agitated man climb over the fence. So he was standing just at the edge of that cliff, ready to throw himself off. Mr. Ritchie knew that this man needed help. Most people would say, that's not my business. Most people would say, it's dangerous to get involved with someone who's in a suicidal state of mind. And most people would just turn a blind eye to it. Mr. Ritchie also had no training in suicide prevention or mental illness or depression. But still, he refused to just sit by. He ran outside and approached the man, and he said something along the lines of, What are you doing over here? Please come and talk to me. Come over and have a cup of tea. Come and have a beer or something like that. That was Mr. Ritchie in an interview that he gave back in 2012 to areyouokday.com. And the conversation that Mr. Ritchie had with that first man was only the beginning. His home was near a place that many distraught people came to, to end their lives. And Mr. Ritchie would do his best to speak with all of them before they could do it. He would always say basically the same thing, and essentially just ask them to come into his home for a meal or a drink and to rethink their decision. A big percentage of them came and talked to me. An amazing number of these people responded. The official estimates from the Australian government say that in the 45 years that Mr. Ritchie lived there, his gentle approach and his concern prevented 160 people from killing themselves. Unofficial estimates from members of the community say the figure may actually be closer to 400 people. That's a lot of lives, a lot of people 
who responded to his outreach, who took him up on his offer for a tea or a beer, and who decided to rethink their decision. Not all of them could be reasoned with. Mr. Ritchie had to watch several desperate people jump to their deaths. And in some cases, even when he was quite old, Mr. Ritchie would climb over that fence and physically drag the would-be jumpers to safety. A few of them were upset with him, but many of those who responded to his outreach later thanked him. One woman climbed back over the fence and went and had breakfast with Mr. Ritchie and his wife. Then when she got back to her home later that day, she called Mr. Ritchie to say that she was feeling better, and a few months after that, she stopped by to give him a magnum of French champagne as a thank you gift. And many others returned to thank Mr. Ritchie for showing them some unexpected kindness during their time of desperation. The Australian government also thanked him in 2006 by awarding him a Medal of the Order of Australia. In 2010, just two years before Mr. Ritchie died, he was named Citizen of the Year. He will be remembered as a man who refused to turn a blind eye when everyone else did, and whose concern made a profoundly positive impact on scores of people. His memory reminds us of what it means to be a good neighbor. And his example, like those of Fabio Chavez and Nicholas Gomez, and Jake Austin and Richard Berry, and my brother, Don Jacques, show us that when we see our brother struggling and about to go under, it is often within our power to help. I'd like to thank you for listening to the show today and also to thank Kayla Taylor for her contribution. And I'll leave you with the words of the late American children's television personality, Fred Rogers, or Mr. Rogers. When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words. And I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. Mm-hmm.